What Don't We Know About the 41st President of the United States? John Meacham will be here to talk about his new biography of George Herbert Walker Bush, Destiny and Power. And if you were raised, as he was, to feel that you could plausibly become the president of the United States, even if it was not yet a probability, then you race, you race, you race. How did the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin transform the state of Israel? On the 20th anniversary of that terrible event, Dan Efron will be here to talk about his new book, Killing a King. The assassination uh, sets off this chain reaction that leads to this shift in power from the pragmatists like Rabin to the ideologues, uh, from the left to the right. Alexander Alter will give us an update from the literary world, and Greg Coles has bestseller news. This is Inside the New York Times Book Review. I'm Pamela Paul. John Meacham is here to talk about his new book, Destiny and Power, The American Odyssey of George Herbert Walker Bush. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. So how did you get into this? I went up to Walker's Point in 1998 with the historian Michael Beschloss uh, to do a piece for Newsweek about uh, A World Transformed, which was the book that President Bush did with Brent Scowcroft about foreign policy. Almost immediately saw that this man was, President Bush, was a much more complicated and interesting figure than I had appreciated. I kind of had a Dana Carvey view of him. Uh, Dana Carvey meets John Cheever and began to understand how it was that he had become president. His charisma is not of a Kennedy or a Clinton level or even of a Reagan level. Yeah, I was going to say that's not usually a word you hear in association with. But it's with... a quiet and persistent charisma. And he became president of the United States in large measure because almost everyone he met, he could ultimately convert into a supporter. You know, the famous Bush Christmas card list was you know, something like 50,000 people. And that was what was so surprising. And as a biographer, you always look for the surprising angles of vision on someone whose importance you don't have to establish so here's a president of the United States whose son becomes president of the United States and is a uh, formidable, much more formidable seeming man. So there's a story there. He gave you a lot of access, but it's not an authorized biography, or it's is it? It's not. It's not. You know, authorized used to just mean cooperate. Right. And now I think in the vernacular. Now it has a taint. It does. Uh, there were no conditions on the book, only one. Mrs. Bush gave me her diaries from 1948 forward. I had to clear any quotations with her, but not context or interpretation. I took 90 pages to her Mm -hmm. of possibilities, and she took nothing off the record. How much time did you spend with him? You know, I never counted up the hours, but uh, from 98 to 2015, I saw him last week, many dozens of hours of of formal interviews, uh, many more dozens of hours of informal contact, but which was on the record, Mm -hmm. so to speak essentially a decade of work off and on, and then the last three years quite intensely. The interviews that your review talks about um, took place really between 2008 and 2012, before he was diagnosed with the Parkinson's that um, has sort of made him less able. As President Bush 43 told me, because he, he wrote a biography of his father last year, he wanted to get his book out before yours. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I leave that to others. But uh, he he said, you know, you got to dad at just the right point. You not only interviewed George Sr., but um, interviewed W. and Jeb and sort of went back and forth between them with what it's clear that 43 
just to use the shorthand, was surprised by some of the things that 41 said. Very much so. He said, what? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) They don't talk about politics. They don't talk about substance very much. You know, and they they always told us that. And we always kind of said, oh, wink, wink, wink. I don't think they really did. So I did kind of find myself and I'm just a boy from Chattanooga going from one president of the United States to another president of the United States with a transcript of what he had said about the son's presidency. Right. Did you hear what this other president, your dad, said about you? Said about you. No, here it is. And in all cases, he said, no, I didn't. And he responded to it. I doubt they ever circled back around and, and recompared notes. Same with Vice President Cheney. One of the things that I, I, I love about biography as opposed to more deadline-driven journalism is you can get fair comment. Mm-hmm. That is, you have world enough in time to do that. So I didn't want there to be any surprises in this book. I didn't want to leave a reader thinking there was a cliffhanger with, or here's, here he said something about 43, but boy, I wonder what 43 thinks. I, I felt an obligation to the project, to history, to get as much of that as possible, to make this as complete as possible. Well, some of the, those, some of those are the uh, juiciest bits in yeah. the book. Yeah. Um, and then you went to Cheney too with some of. Totally. Uh, Took him everything. Uh, anybody who got dinged in any way, and it was usually by President Forty One in the diary or in interviews, I went with the full transcript. All right. So let's give an example for those who um, are listening but have not yet read the book or read all of the little little bits. Right. Um, Give an example of something that George Sr. was uh, very forthcoming about uh, that they then went to the person he talked about to. President Bush, 41, told me that he did not believe that George W. Bush's rhetoric had always been as diplomatically wise as it should be. Uh, and I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, I think if you go back to the axis of evil in these things, that will be seen as not benefiting anything historically. So that is, to my mind, the one criticism I've ever heard out of his mouth of his son in a quarter century of joint public life. So I took the statement, went to Dallas, went from Houston to Dallas mm-hmm. and gave it to the president with President 43. It's very hard to keep them all straight. And said, this is what your dad said. And he said, well, he's never said it to me. I disagree. Although he did say to his credit, well, you know, at least they understood me in Midland. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, what it did was it pointed up a, a central reality, which is they are two very different men raised in two very different worlds. George Herbert Walker Bush is a child of Grove Lane in Greenwich with a father who's a Connecticut senator and an Eisenhower Republican. George W. Bush is thoroughly Texan. He talks about how he, when he went to Andover, was the unhappiest he'd ever been. George W. Bush explicitly wanted to be a transformative president. George H.W. Bush became a transformative president by the force of events, not by the force of his personality. So there's a kind of a seesaw there. Right. How has he transformed since his presidency? He's had the, a unique post-presidency given the way everybody else does it now. It's almost an old-fashioned one. You know, he really has retired. Right. Um, he didn't want to build a foundation. Uh, he raises money for charity all the time. They're tireless about it. So I don't mean that at all. He's a point of light, to use his term. But his code has been never complicate the life of the president, Mm -hmm. whether you were working for him, whether you were the vice president, 
And then, of course, because he was president, he knew what a pain in the neck it was when Jimmy Carter would do something or Nixon would do something. His code of don't get in, as he calls it, the advice business, the op-ed business. Don't go to yellow pad conferences, one of my favorite phrases, yellow pad conferences, where you produce reports about what we must do, what must be done. And then he would say, who the hell wants to hear from a bunch of used-to-bes? Right. It goes to a larger point, if I may, about his entire life code, about what is, in fact, his vision. I think two experiences made him very future-oriented, which we don't think of him that way, right? You think of him as the ultimate president of the past. Yes. Not true. He looks forward, always forward. I think two things happened. One was his wartime experience where he lost two crewmates in uh, combat action over Chichijima in the Pacific. His question was, why was I spared? Yeah, that's very moving. I think that he wanted to make sure every moment of his life was as commensurate as possible with the scale of the sacrifice of those two other men. And the other is the loss of his daughter, Robin. She died of leukemia? Of leukemia at age four in 1953, October 53. It's one of the reasons there's so many years between. Jeb is seven years younger than George. Mm -hmm. Robin, Robin was in between. He cried at a level that was genuinely discomforting I mean, physically. He also cried about the crew that he lost. I asked him, I said, what's the lesson of Robin's death? And he said that life is unpredictable and fragile. I believe that's a significant part of what drove him, is that at any moment it could be taken away. And if you were raised, as he was, to feel that you could plausibly become the president of the United States, even if, even if it was not yet a probability, then you race, you race, you race. You start the book off, uh, you open with another big loss right after Election Day. Why did you decide to start the book that way? I think that's the day the 20th century ended. I think the last president of the World War II generation losing to the first baby boomer president. First of all, you're never really in bed with presidents. Uh, So the diary allowed me to paint as intimate a portrait as I possibly could. It's 12.50, it's quarter after midnight on November 3rd, turning into November 4th. He's in suite 271 of the Houstonian Hotel. Uh, Barbara's asleep. He gets up. He's whispering into his handheld tape recorder. The, the audio is incredibly moving. And he says, I don't understand how I just lost to someone who did not serve his country in the military. Uh, I don't understand how a country that runs on duty, honor country has done this. It's anachronistic, and I understand that some readers are going to read it and go, look, this get-off-my-lawn kind of attitude is not what we wanted. But look at it from his point of view. When he was 18 years old, the day he turned 18, Mm -hmm. he joined the United States Navy and became one of the youngest flying officers in the Navy. At 20, he was shot down. He watched men get cut in half on aircraft carriers at an age when most people, you know, have just learned how to order a latte. It's a different level of experience. Again, without being nostalgic, you know, the greatest generation was also, you know, the folks who kept Jim Crow in place for too long. I'm not I'm not over sentimentalizing this, but part of biography. And if Emerson was right, that there is properly no history, only biography. Part of it has to be taking people on their own terms. What was their ambient reality? His ambient reality was a life of privilege, but also the expectation that to whom much is given, much is expected. Service. Did he feel at that moment like his time had passed that you're totally, saying? Totally. To some extent, I think the son's uh, success, uh, George W.'s in 94 and, and Jeb's in 98, gave him, really kind of snapped him out of what was a despondency. 
His brother told me he thought he was depressed in Houston in those first years, that first months after he left office. I mean, think about it. You've sought this office. You've thought about this office from 1965, at least 1965 forward. You get it. You've been in the White House for 12 years. So he was as vice president and president. He'd been just that was his reality for as long as Franklin Roosevelt was president of the United States. And suddenly only 37 percent of your countrymen want you there. And 19 of them want this crazy billionaire from Dallas. Right. It was incredibly painful. When you write about the Iran-Contra, um, you had used a phrase that his behavior, his actions at that time, or um, how he handled it, was unworthy of his essential character. Yeah. What would you describe as his essential character? I think he was a man of grace and generosity and honor, empathy, and someone who always tried to do his best. But like all of us, he was imperfect. There was a moment in the Iran-Contra scandal where he allowed his ambition to trump his obligation to the truth. He initially denied the whole thing. George Shultz had to go see him and sort of talk him out of it. And then for ensuing years, he gave very complicated and often contradictory answers. But, you know, if you're looking for philosophical consistency and saintliness, you've got to go to the church or the academy. One of the things that I came to is that in three examples, he did things to get elected that were not as noble as they could be. But what was redemptive and what saved this book for me, honestly, is that once he had power, he did the right thing. So quickly, in 1964, he runs for the Senate in Texas as a Goldwater Republican. He opposes almost unimaginably now the 1964 Civil Rights Act. What does he do when he's in Congress in 1968? He votes for open housing, allowing mm -hmm. African-Americans to have free choice of real estate. So he did one thing to get elected that was not what we wanted to see. But then once he was in office, he took the heat and did it. An early uh, forecast of the tax reversal. Precisely. You know, that's the second one. And the third one is um, – he ran that uh, brutal campaign against Michael Dukakis, uh, whom Willie I inter Horton. interviewed and who was fascinating on the topic. Yet he was the last president to actually attempt to create a centrist culture of compromise in Washington. When you go back to him and, and ask him about the Willie Horton campaign, about that campaign, did he express any regrets? Yes, he was not. He, he But it's sort of a politician's regret. He regrets that people thought it was negative. Right. He's regret people were hurt by right, his actions. Right, right. I apologize if I hurt your feelings. Two contrary myths have grown up around Horton. One is that it had nothing to do with race. One was when one is the more popular one, uh, which is, of course, it was the they played the race car and they were skirting close to the line. I spent a lot of time on that issue because it's an early example of independent expenditure groups that now so dominate our politics. My own view is that the Bush campaign was clean on it. It was a bad program. You know, you shouldn't furlough first-degree murderers. Was that a presidential issue? That's a different question. Mm -hmm. But interestingly, Bush was a better politician than a lot of people thought. He, His first diary entry about Dukakis, before his staff came to him with all the opposition research and stuff, he said it was going to be easy to put this into a classic liberal versus conservative thing, which is – 
the past is always prologue, which is what he had done in 1964 in his first race against a liberal Texas senator. Given that uh, this is now a, a political dynasty, I'm interested to hear a little bit more about his family and his relations with his family. What kind of father was he? He, When he was there, he was the most heroic, glowing figure. The children get misty-eyed talking about going to baseball games and playing catch. In point of fact, he wasn't there that much in that generation. Uh, he was on the road for the oil business early on. Then he was in politics. Um, Does he think of himself as a good father? If he were sitting here, he would say, I tried. All of his children would say he was. I think one of the reasons that Jeb and George W. are in politics is because he's the most amazing man they've ever known. Um, and I understand that's hard for people to see. Uh, you know, there used to be old, an old joke in 92 that George Bush reminds every woman of their first husband. You know, if you know him, that's not true. I mean, again, there's an empathy there, innate. There's a kid named Bennett McNichol at Greenwich Country Day School who was heavy and got stuck in a barrel on an obstacle course. And Poppy Bush, the most popular boy in the school, was winning the race but stopped it, stopped running the race himself mm -hmm. and went back to get Bennett McNichol out of that barrel. And I asked him why. And he said, because I'd never not been picked for a team. I'd never gotten stuck in a barrel. And I just was thinking, what if it were me? And that maybe that sounds like George Washington in the cherry tree. <laughs> but but there are. 150 stories like that. Right. Uh, when I would go to interview somebody for this book, I would have to allow an extra 20 minutes for them just to tell me about the notes he'd written them, the things he'd done, the doctors he'd called for them. Back to the parenting. You know, Barbara raised those children heroically. One of the many times he cried when we were doing interviews was when I asked him, is, did, did he know in 1945 when he married her that she was going to be up for 42 moves included going to Beijing. Wow. And he started to cry. And he said, no. And she's been amazing. And she's been the general who kept us together. Did this level of emotion surprise you? It did. But I became normalized to it. I mean, there was a lot of it. He cried about Robin, uh, cried about Barbara. He cried about his mother. What impression did you get of his marriage? I think it's, well, it's 70 and a half years old at this point. I think she's his fiercest protector. I think to some extent she still can't believe her good fortune that Poppy Bush loves her. And I know he can't believe his good fortune that she was there. All right. I want to end um, with the beginning. Uh, you have two epigraphs in your book. And uh, if you could just read them and explain why you chose them. Sure. Destiny is not a matter of chance. It is a matter of choice. It is not a thing to be waited for. It is a thing to be achieved. William Jennings Bryan, American lawyer and statesman. Moods come and go, but greatness endures. George Herbert Walker Bush. I believe that destiny with Bryan is not a matter of chance. It is a sense, a, a, a synonym for one's ambition and sense of what is possible. And I, I wanted to put this in because I didn't want people to think that by destiny and power, I meant that because he was born a rich kid in Greenwich, he was, of course, destined to do this. What was so interesting, do you, do you mind if I read one other thing? Not at all. The Bushes kept score fairly but intensely and scrupulously, too. Proficiency was appreciated and admired, whether in sports, business, or politics. Things were not to be done half-heartedly or cavalierly. The family's children were to master what they undertook and finish what they began. 
No one ever met that tribal challenge with a greater sense of purpose than George Herbert Walker Bush. He had a mission, to serve, to make his mark, to be in the game. He was certain of his place, respectful of tradition, solicitous of others. Yet he was an ambitious politician, too, and therein lay the great tension of his life. To serve, he had to win, and if he had to win, then that meant someone else had to lose which was, when all was said and done, just fine with George Bush. Such was the way of the world, a world that those closest to him and he himself, though he hated to admit it, long believed he was destined to run. As he grew up, meeting test after test, making friend after friend, impressing elder after elder, he became what his sister Nancy Bush Ellis called the star of the family, a star of such brightness that winning the presidency of the United States itself seemed possible long before it became probable. He was meant to be saved, his sister remarked, of his World War II experience. In the 1950s, Bush's father introduced his son to the French ambassador in Washington. This is my son George, Prescott said, adding, he's going to be the president of the United States one day. Informed, however subtly, by the sense that he was destined to do great things, George Bush never doubted that he was the best man on the ballot. Armed with this self-confidence, a personal assurance masked by his kindness and his grace, he could justify adapting his principles and attacking his opponents as the inevitable price of politics. To Bush, such calculations were not cynical. They were instrumental to the desired end, the accumulation of power to be deployed in the service of America and of the world. What one said or did to rise to ultimate authority mattered less to Bush than whether one was principled and selfless once in command. And as president of the United States, Bush was often both. That's from the prologue. Well, there's a lot more to that book. Thank you so much for being here. I'm grateful. Thank you. That was John Meacham. His new book is Destiny and Power, The American Odyssey of George Herbert Walker Bush. This is John Williams, an editor at The Times, and I'm joined by Alexandra Alter, our publishing reporter with news from the literary world. Hi, Alexandra. Hi, John. So we're going to talk this week about the state of the business a bit. The state of the business. Yes, it's interesting. There's some of the trends that we've been noticing in the past year are starting to accelerate. Um, mostly the decline of ebook sales, that's continuing, mm-hmm. and the upswing in digital audio, that's become the fastest growing format. Um, so this, these numbers came out this week from the Association of American Publishers, which compiles sales figures from a bunch of publishers, and it showed that year-to-date, digital audio is up almost 40%, Wow, uh, 37% growth compared to 2014. Um, that keeps happening, and I think a lot of it has to do with everyone having a smartphone, and mm-hmm. you know, it, it's become so easy to download audio. Books. And in recent years, it's been making those kind of giant leaps. Yes, percentage-wise, it's looking like eBooks used to look. You know, just. Mm-hmm. Double-digit growth every month, every year. Um, and meanwhile, I know that eBooks had sort of plateaued, but now it's actually declining. Now it's actually declining. Uh, eBooks were down for the first seven months of the year uh, by eleven percent compared to the same period in 2014. And you know um, that's been good news, I think, for some independent bookstores, but it's actually hurting some publishers. Um, we saw Simon and Schuster. Um, HarperCollins and Hachette all came out with their earnings recently mm. for their most recent financial quarter. Uh, Simon & Schuster was able to offset 
a decline in ebook sales with the growth of audio. Ebook mm-hmm. sales fell there about 17%, but digital audio was up 40%. So wow. they actually came out okay. But at some of the other publishers, um, HarperCollins and Hachette, you know, the ebook sales really did hurt the bottom line, the uh, decline. Do in we think that's sales. because they're not, those publishers aren't doing as much digital audio and so they're not taking as much advantage of the increase in that category? Or it's hard to tell based on the. It's hard to tell, you know, what happened at Simon & Schuster. I guess it depends on what titles you have and what's Mm -hmm. really selling in in digital audio. Right. In terms of other formats, um, hardcover is down. Um, not a huge amount, but you know, substantially, it's down 6.6% compared to 2014. But paperback is up. Um, that category has grown 13% this year compared to the previous year. And so I think you know, one theory is that people that were buying ebooks might be returning to paperbacks. Possibly, mm-hmm. ebook prices have gone up from a lot of the major publishers once they regain the ability to set their own ebook prices. You're not seeing as many right. 9.99 ebook titles. You're seeing them at 12 or 15 dollars. You know. Know, they're comparable to a hardcover that's a discounted. And so if the paperback's cheaper, it's possible that people are going that route. Yeah, with the discounts, paperbacks can get down pretty low now. Exactly. Well, I'm sure the publishers want some more hardcover buyers in time for the holidays. I'm sure they'll get them. So we'll keep an eye on it. Thanks, All Alexander. Right. Thanks for having me. Dan Efron joins us now. He is the author of Killing a King, The Assassination of Yitzhak Rabin and the Remaking of Israel. Dan, hi. Thanks for being here. Thank you. This is your first book. It is. Did you know that you wanted to write a book about Israel or specifically about the assassination or how did you come to write it? You know, I was based in Israel uh, off and on for uh, chunks of time over the last 20 years. And I was there as the Newsweek bureau chief between 2010 and 2013. And that was the time that uh, I thought this is a good moment to revisit the assassination. I had been in Israel in the mid-90s. I covered the rally where Rabin was killed and then covered the murder trial. I was a young journalist. By 2010, when I went back, it felt like that hopeful moment that existed in the uh, mid-90s in the Rabin era had really gone away. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that was the catalyst, try to go back and examine what that era was like and how this young man, this 25-year-old law Mm -hmm. student, this Jewish Israeli, this Jewish extremist had managed to kind of defy the odds and and get to Rabin and kill him. So you were there in Tel Aviv the day he was assassinated. Right. Yeah. I was sent to report on that rally. Rallies aren't usually much uh, news for foreign correspondents. It's speeches. Because Rabin had been involved in this Oslo deal and because uh, the Oslo deal waxed and waned, there was violence and that turned Israelis against it. And then there were these hopeful moments and Israelis were for it. The rally was really a litmus test for Rabin's popularity. And that was going to be the story. It was going to be a short story about whether Rabin was up or down. I had a rented apartment in Tel Aviv. I walked to the rally a few blocks away. It was a, a central square in Tel Aviv about the size of a few football fields. As I got close, I saw what I think was probably the biggest crowd I'd ever seen in my life. There were more than 100,000 people there. Uh, And then I left. The the rally uh, cycled through the speeches and songs, uh, and it ended. And we journalists walked away. I got a few blocks away towards my apartment and then got a beeper message saying, uh, shots fired near Rabin, turn around and go back. And what happened? 
And he went back. Well, I ran back um, really against the flow of the crowd because people had not heard yet that something happened and people were moving away and ran to the stage first, the stage where Rabin had given his speech. And then people pointed to the uh, parking lot behind the stage. It was this open air parking lot. Uh, and there were still people around. There were witnesses who said it looked like Rabin had been shot. And from there, the hospital was a few blocks away. The nearest hospital was a few blocks away. So I ran to the hospital and waited outside until an Israeli official came out and announced that Rabin is dead. What was the mood like in Tel Aviv after that and in Israel in general? You know, I, I would say this instant sense of trauma, shock and trauma. People compare the assassination to the Kennedy assassination mm -hmm. here. I think in most ways it's not like the Kennedy assassination, except for that, the sense of national uh, trauma. And it happened immediately. You could feel it was very palpable, in part because there's no tradition of political murder. There's no assassination in Israel uh, to date up until 1995. But also it was, it was almost immediately clear that this was a, a Jew who had killed the Israeli prime minister, not a Palestinian, not an Arab. And that you know, really contributed to this sense of shock. Tell us about that period um, where they didn't know who killed him and how they found out that it was a Jew. Yigal Amir, this 25-year-old, this gets to the parking lot. Uh, he's coming to the rally really to kill Rabin. He, he um, knows that Rabin will speak at the rally. He has been stalking Rabin for a couple of years. He walks by the parking lot and sees the Cadillac. He knows that's Rabin's car, the armored Cadillac that uh, Rabin is ferried around in. Uh, and he tells himself, if that's the car, that's where Rabin will end up. And he waits and he manages to get into the parking lot. It's supposed to be a secured area. He just walked right in, and so did others. There were bystanders there who were not supposed to be there. The there was a, a security failure, a very uh, dramatic security failure. And he spent about 40 minutes there, saw Rabin come down the stairs and circled around him and killed him. Immediately, Amir drops his gun uh, and falls to the floor, and he's pounced on by policemen, um, and they put him in a police car. And, and already in the car, it's he's confessing. He's very proud of what he's done. And so it's clear to the policeman in the car that he is this uh, Jewish Israeli. I think on the news in Israel, it took about 20 minutes before it was reported that Igal Amir, this Jewish Israeli uh, law student, had shot Rabin. How long had he been plotting to kill Rabin? Amir sees the that handshake in the White House between Arafat and Rabin. He watches it on TV in 1993. So Just like two years earlier. In our mind now, it's kind of collapsed as if like the Oslo Accord were, you know, it was signed and then immediately after he was killed. Right. No. So it takes us a, a two-year period, although Amir almost immediately tells himself, you know, I'm going to protest against uh, this uh, agreement. I'm going to rally other people to protest against it. But if that doesn't work, I'm going to kill him. And uh, Amir was uh, in the military. He was in an, in an infantry unit. He, he um, knows how to use guns. He carries a Beretta, a 9-millimeter Beretta, everywhere he goes. At some point, he sees Rabin at a wedding. A friend of his is marrying the daughter of a chief rabbi. And Rabin is invited to the wedding, and so is Amir. Uh, and he sees him there. This is early on. It's a couple of months after the Oslo deal is signed. Uh, and he realizes how unprotected or how loosely protected Rabin is and just how easy it would be. It's amazing that at the same time that Israel's intelligence is so sophisticated and they've, in fact, infiltrated the groups uh, that were not necessarily the groups that Yigal Amir was involved in, but others like it. They had infiltrated that, but at the same time, security around Rabin was so 
lasts. Right. And there is intelligence information in the months leading up to the assassination that people on the far right are agitating uh, and are willing to use violence or talking about using violence, even talking about assassinating Rabin. Uh, this intelligence information flows through the security agencies. Uh, people talk about it. Uh, you know, I interviewed the uh, chief of the Shabak, the uh, internal security service at the time. He said, we knew, but it was very hard to internalize it. It was very hard to absorb this idea that a Jew poses a threat to Rabin. This book is obviously not just a blow-by-blow of uh, the assassination, but also you have a larger point to make about um, your subtitle is The Remaking of Israel. How did the assassination remake Israel? The assassination uh, sets off this chain reaction that leads to this shift in power from the pragmatists like Rabin to the ideologues. Uh, from the left to the right. Mm-hmm. Uh, within six months of the assassination, Netanyahu is elected, Benjamin Netanyahu, and he really is the dominant political figure over the last 20 years. I think for 10 of those 20 years, he has been, almost 10, uh, he has been the prime minister of Israel. And he was at some of those rallies where people were crying death to Rabin and, the, and that sort of incendiary that's right. Um, and he was uh, a young uh, politician who had just become the head of the, the right-wing Likud party. Mm-hmm. He attended some of those rallies. I think uh, there were occasions where he felt uh, that uh, the uh, protesters were going too far. But, but most of the time, he would say nothing. So how did the assassination bring that shift to the right? Because, you know, you could think as an outsider, it could have easily gone the other way. And it did look like it was going to go the other way. Certainly in the first weeks and months, the leader who takes over for Rabin is Shimon Peres. He was the foreign minister at the time. Later, he he becomes the president of Israel. And he makes this series of uh, just terrible political mistakes, mm-hmm. uh, beginning with uh, the, the decision not to call for an immediate election. Uh, Israel is a very polarized country at the time, about 50-50 for and against the peace deals that Rabin had started. But immediately after the assassination, there is a spike for the left, a spike for Rabin's party and for Paris. Uh, and Paris has a moment uh, an opportunity to capitalize on it, uh, but he can't bring himself to do it, in part because of this rivalry between him and Rabin. He feels that calling an election immediately and winning that election would mean winning uh, based on the achievements of Rabin and based on the the death of Rabin. Uh, for him, given this rivalry, this longstanding rivalry, he can't bring himself to do it. Are there people on the left in Israel who at that time or now see Perez as having squandered that opportunity? Yes, people talk about it. And and Paris, um, you know, I interviewed him for the book and I asked him this very question, why didn't you call an immediate election? And he doesn't quite say it had to do with the rivalry or his own uh, ego, which I think is, is the honest truth. But he does say more or less uh, this idea that um, he wanted to have his own achievements. He wanted to come to the public uh, a year later, let's say, uh, and be able to point to specific things that he had achieved on his own and say, you know, elect me for these reasons. Did the assassination of Rabin kill the peace process? Well, it's very hard to say if, if, uh, if we're being honest as, uh, as historians or as journalists looking back. Um, you know, there are two narratives in Israel. One is that that moment killed the peace, and it wasn't just Igal Amir, it was the entire right. 
uh, for inciting to violence. Is that a liberal Jewish-Israeli view? Is that a Palestinian view? Where does that... It's a view on the left mm -hmm. of, of Jewish Israel. Okay. And we're sort of mainly talking about the discourse mm -hmm. within uh, the, the, you know, the Jewish population of right. Israel. Uh, and there's a view on the right that the peace process would never have worked. I think what I've come to in researching the book uh, is this idea that if the two-state solution could have worked, if that Oslo process could have worked at all, that was the moment. And that was the most hopeful moment, I would say, 1995 or the, the mid-90s, the Rabin era, more hopeful than at any time in the 20 years since then. Was there at that time or subsequent to that time an introspection on the right and especially on the, the far right? not quite the extreme that um, Amir was on, but that this had been allowed to fester, that, that he had been abetted by public rhetoric? Well, uh, not much of one. There is for a short time in, let's say, a small group within the right. There are people who come out and say uh, there needs to be a reckoning. But it's certainly not a majority opinion on the right. And it doesn't last very long, in part because the left is very quick to accuse uh, not just Egal Amir or to blame not just Egal Amir, to, but, but to blame a broader swath of people on the right. And so you see the right getting into this kind of defensive crouch. We're talking on the 20th anniversary of the assassination. How does this anniversary and the, the sort of current view of the assassination differ from what it was like on the 10th anniversary? Well, let's see. The 10th anniversary was 2005. I, I would say that in some way uh, there was probably more hope 10 years ago. 2005 was the year that Israel withdrew unilaterally from Gaza. Right. I think that generated some sense that maybe the two sides can get back on track. I think what identifies or what characterizes the 20th anniversary and really what characterizes Israel and its relationship with the Palestinians today is a, is a really an utter hopelessness, mm -hmm. a feeling that the Oslo deal that Rabin started uh, is, if not dead, almost dead. Uh, and the prospects of peace, I think, uh, very few people uh, believe exist at all. Your title, Killing a King, comes from, uh, and you quote him, Haggai Amir, the brother of Yigal Amir. What is that quote and where did it come from? Killing a King um, is part of a letter that Haggai Amir, the brother of Yigal Amir, the brother of the assassin, he's also a co-conspirator and he's convicted and sentenced to 17 or almost 17 years in prison. He writes in a letter uh, in the, the days or weeks after the murder, a letter describing what he thinks is the impact of the assassination. And in some ways it's prescient. I read the letter uh, many years later when I started researching the book and it felt uh, prescient to me. Uh, and Haggai says, according to Judaism, killing a king is profoundly significant. It affects the entire nation and alters its destiny. Both of these young men, Amir, Yigal Amir and Haggai Amir, are religious. They're steeped in scripture. And he is putting the assassination in the context of the long arc of Jewish history, of kings and prophets. And he's saying very clearly that to them, their understanding of this action was that it would it would shape Israel uh, or change Israel forever. And um, Haggai, who wrote this letter, was back in the news on the 20th anniversary for something he posted on Facebook. What did he say? He posted on his Facebook page. And by the way, he's, he's a very active Facebooker. He doesn't uh, regret the murder, although his views are a little more complex today than they were 20 years ago. Um, and he was responding to something the president of Israel said. Uh, Reuven Rivlin, 
you know, in Israel, there's a president, and that's largely a symbolic position. And then there's the prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu. The president said something like, I will never pardon Yigal Amir. And that comes up from time to time because most people who get sentenced in Israel to life in prison usually spend about 20 or 25 years in prison and are automatically pardoned. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so the president was making the point that Yigal Amir will spend the rest of his life in prison as far as he is concerned, as far as the president is concerned. And so Haggai's response is, Haggai says, it's really up to God. You don't decide God will decide. And then he says something like, there will come a a day when you and your presidency and the state of Israel get washed into uh, the dustbin of history, uh, something like that. You know, I think to Israeli police uh, coming from a guy who was involved in the assassination 20 years ago, that was provocative enough to arrest him and hold him for a day and question him. I guess that's one way to mark the 20th anniversary of the assassination of Rabin. Um, Dan, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. The book, again, is Killing a King, The Assassination of Yitzhak Rabin and the Remaking of Israel by Dan Efron, reviewed this week in the book review by Eileen Prusher. Greg Coles joins me now with bestseller news. Hey, Greg. Hi, John. What's new on the list this week? Well, it's funny. There's uh, not a lot new on the list, but all of the action that there is is once again taking place at the top of the list, Mm -hmm. as sometimes occurs. Mm -hmm. In both fiction and nonfiction, there are only three new titles, but they are all within the top five. Okay. On the fiction side, uh, we start at number five with John Irving's new novel, Avenue of Mysteries, uh, which is in some ways a very typical John Irving novel. It's about a writer. It involves a circus and (laughs) a lot. Lions and <laughs> outlandish incidents. Yeah, there you go. Up at number two, Michael Connolly continues his Harry Bosch series uh, with a new novel called The Crossing. And the final new title on the fiction side of things this week is uh, by our old friend Stephen King, uh, who has a new story collection. Um, kind of a new and collected. Some have never been published before. Uh, Some have. The name of the book is The Bazaar of Bad Dreams, and that's new at number one. Yeah, that was reviewed recently uh, in the book review. Those are some very, very familiar names on the fiction list. How about nonfiction? Uh, Nonfiction, also some very familiar names. Uh, Starting down at number five, Donald J. Trump has a new book. I've heard of him. (laughs) Yes, you have. Called Crippled America. (laughs) <laughs> very hopeful title. <laughs> it's funny, you know, um, all of his earlier books were very optimistic books. Um, the Art of the Deal, which, you know, lasted almost a year on the hardcover list. Yeah. Um, big, big success for him. Uh, he was beaming on the cover of all those books. <laughs> this one, he's frowning. He's got, he looks like Sam the Eagle. <laughs> It's uh, his campaign book talking about, you know, what is wrong with America and why we need Donald Trump to make it great again. Yeah, I guess candidate Trump has a slightly darker vision than (laughs) entrepreneur Trump. Uh, Then at number three, another familiar name, the uh, Fox News host Brian Kilmeade has written a book with Don Yeager. They wrote an earlier book that was also a bestseller called George Washington's Secret Six. Uh, this one, back to the Founding Fathers again, is Thomas Jefferson and the Tripoli Pirates. And really, it looks at America's first battle with kind of Islamic states, mm-hmm. the Tripoli Pirate War, the Barbary Pirates mm-hmm. uh, were th- this group of Islamic pirates um, who were threatening America's trade ships. And and so Jefferson sent the Navy to blockade them. And, uh, and it was kind of our, our first big naval battles. Mm-hmm. 
then finally, uh, also new at number one this week, um, actress Leia Ramini, who's best known from uh, King of Queens, has written a book with Rebecca Paley called Troublemaker. It's another Scientology tell-all. Ramini grew up in the church. Her mom was a member. Um, she spent you know something like 30 years in the church before she broke uh, very publicly with it in 2013. <laughs> And um, now she's written a book uh, looking at her time in Scientology. There's a lot of appetite for those looks behind the curtain there. Yeah, I think a lot of that might have to do with Tom Cruise. Thanks, Greg. <laughs> Thanks, John. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com books. Our producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez. And you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul.